Just join me in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We all probably have a pessimistic, doom and gloom friend or family member. You know the type. Um, You're just trying to make small talk. You say, the weather's nice today. And they say, well... Have you seen the forecast for tomorrow? It looks terrible. Or you're like, hey, stock market's up. They say, you know when else it was up? 1929, before the crash. <laughs> um, you know the type. But maybe you also have a friend or a family member who is the blind optimist, right? They're little toddlers running around with a wet brown spot on their pants. Oh, it's, it's just mud. Probably just mud. Um... Or, you know, Bible study attendance is shrinking. Oh, it's a, it's a season of pruning. Or, my favorite is, uh, he's texting this girl, and she's not texting back. He's like, ah, she's probably just busy, right? She's, she's not busy, by the way. She just doesn't want to talk to you. Um, but, so you've got the pessimist, and you've got the optimist. Most Christians probably are pretty convinced that the pessimist, that's not the way to go. But what about this blind optimist? Is it, is it sort of admirable, actually, to be in that camp? That's one of the questions that's raised by our sermon text today. If you'd open with me to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we've been going in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be starting with verse 8. In this passage, the people of Israel in Isaiah's day apparently were embracing a blind optimism as though it were a virtue. So before we jump in, though, let's situate ourselves again in the book of Isaiah. We've been working our way through here. Um, This is the time when God's people, Israel, are divided into north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. It's before they're exiled, taken out of their land. And so here's how the book kind of breaks down. Um, Chapters 1 through 5, if you keep on flipping through there, chapters 1 through 5, are an introduction to the major themes of the book. It introduces the idea that God's people in the time of Isaiah are not who they were meant to be. Then we saw in chapter 6, Isaiah has this moment, this experience of grace through judgment for himself personally. And he has this cold touch to his lips, and he's made ready to do God's work that God has called him to. And then in chapter 7 through 12, that we've been working through in the last few weeks, we've been seeing it laid out that Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms that make up God's people, they are actually going to go through the same process that Isaiah had to go through in chapter 6. They are going to go through grace, through judgment, though. And so we're right in the middle of that right now, right in chapters 8 and 9, and today we'll get into chapter 10 a little bit. Chapters 7 and 8, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah and how they're going to experience grace through judgment. Today, we're up in the northern kingdom, Israel, and how they're going to experience grace through judgment. So there's a big question that gets addressed in this text today. The question is this, what will God do with a blindly optimistic people who refuse to seek him, even when everything is falling apart all around them? Right, so when people insist on clinging to their optimism instead of facing reality, how does God respond in that situation? We're going to see the answer to that, and it's given four times in the text. If you scan through our text, Isaiah 9, 8 to 10, 4, 
uh, and you want to be open to that and follow along with this, you'll see the same sentence repeated four times. It says, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. In other words, God will refuse to relent from his anger. And that's our structure. It's the four-part structure. Each of those refrains that come up four times is in response to a different sin problem, actually. So the first sin problem we'll see in the first section is self-exaltation. Then secondly, we have leader worship. And then third, we have what I'm calling brotherly hate. And then fourth, we have social injustice. We'll work our way through those four sin problems that come up in the text. And each of those is followed by this refrain that God's hand of judgment is still stretched out. So let's jump in. We'll read as we go. Chapter 9, starting in verse 8, starting with self-exaltation in the first section. Follow along with me as I read verses 8 through 12. It says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. Yeah, the sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. As we're reading that, did you see why I'm titling this section of the passage Self-Exaltation? I'm thinking about verse 9 in particular. You see there the issue at hand, right? Pride, arrogance of heart. And how does that manifest itself? Well, I think it's the root of the blind optimism that we see in verse 10. Did you see that blind optimistic statement in verse 10? Sure, the bricks have fallen. That's bad. But we will build addressed stones. It'll be even better than it was before the bricks fell. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. It'll be even better than before. It's a blind optimism. It's kind of like the person who says... Uh, yeah, you know, I just got cut from the high school team, but I'm still going to play D1, right? Where does that come from? It's, it's a perception of oneself that is a little bit off. It's unrealistic, and that's where the people of Israel are at. At the time of this passage, they are in their final decade of their existence as a nation. They are years away from not existing anymore, but they can't see it. Instead, they're looking to each other and telling each other, Hey, we can do this. We can make a comeback. But they can't. Because God hasn't intended for this trial to result in them looking in the mirror and giving themselves a pep talk about a comeback. God has intended this trial to be one that instead would make them look to him in humility. I wonder if anyone needs to hear that this morning. I wonder if anyone needs to hear, even this morning, Um, this message because maybe you've prided yourself in having the attitude of the little engine that could for most of your life, right? What's the slogan of the little engine that could? I think I can. I think I can, right? Maybe you've lived your whole life that way and that's how you've succeeded. That message is inspiring to us as kids, but then we grow up and we realize there's at least three problems with the little engine that could story, right? First off, um, believing I can do something doesn't always create the ability to do it, right? No matter how much I believe that I'm going to play in the NBA, it's not happening. And it actually never was going to happen no matter what I would have done in my life. Secondly, much of what we achieve on our self-effort, we realize later on, actually wasn't honoring to God at all. It was just honoring to ourselves. And so 
we actually end up experiencing something even worse than failure, and that is succeeding at the wrong things. Third problem with the little engine that could is maybe it's the opposite of the attitude that God is often wanting to produce in us. Like, he's allowing trials into our lives to remove our illusion of independence, but we're responding to trials by doubling down on our independence and saying, I think I can, I think I can even louder to try to make it happen on our own. Maybe in that sense, a better slogan for the Christian than I think I can, I think I can would be something like, I know I can't, I know he can. I know I can't, I know he can. In any case, in chapter 9, the people of Israel are stuck in I think I can mode. So according to verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against them. And the result is what we see in verses 11 and 12, that their enemies have been stirred up against them. And enemies are coming from all sides. In verse 11, it's Assyria that's being talked about. In verse 12, it's Syria and the Philistines. The picture there in verse 12 is one of like a feeding frenzy of piranhas. And this helpless fish is in the water just getting a bite taken off here and a bite taken off there. That's what Israel's experiencing as parts of their lands get parceled off by their enemies from the east and from the west and from the north. Despite that, they haven't yet turned to God. That's why we see the refrain that we see at the end of verse 12. We see it for the first time there. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, I don't know if you feel uncomfortable when you hear that about God being angry. His anger. Maybe you feel uncomfortable, and that's understandable if you do. After all, we all probably want a God who is love, right? Is loving toward us, not a God who's angry at us. But when we think about someone like a Hitler coming on the stage of world history, or when we think about the serial rapist wreaking havoc on a college campus, or when we think about a terrorist mowing down a group of innocent people, what would we have to say about the God who is not angry in the face of those evils? When we reflect on that for a moment, we realize that actually, in order for God to be a good God, in order for God to be a loving God, he actually has to be an angry God, at least in response to certain evils. In other words, I, I can't say that I love Jewish people unless I hate the Holocaust, right? And it's the same with God. If he was not angry at evil, we couldn't say truly that he was a good or loving God. It's two sides of the same coin. So we start to realize that actually maybe I do want an angry God. I just don't want a God who's angry at me. <laughs> but when we look at the pages of Scripture, we see that uh, we see a pretty horrifying reality, which is that the same sin that lived inside of Hitler, the same sin that lives inside the serial rapist, the same sin that lives inside the terrorist, lives inside of me. And maybe it doesn't manifest itself in the same ways, but it is no less deserving of God's anger. And a good God must display that anger. So let me make sure one thing's clear here before we move on to our second point, and it's this. God is love. Hear me on that. God is love. God gets angry. There's a difference. God is love. God gets angry. Still, his anger is real, and it's terrifying. 
And by the end of verse 12, we see that his anger has not turned away yet from the people of Israel. That was self-exaltation, our first section. Second section of the text is verses 13 through 17. Deals with leader worship. Let's read those together. Please do follow along with me once again. It says, The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed. In one day, the elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide these people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. First time I read read this, I was confused by the imagery in verse 14. I don't know if you were as well. Head and tail, palm branch and reed. What is that talking about? What is this section about? But then verse 15 explains it for us, doesn't it? The elder and honored man is the head, the prophet who teaches lies as the tail. Other words, in other words, this section is about a failure in leadership. It's about problems with the leaders of Israel. Are the ordinary people of Israel guilty? Sure. Verse 13, the people did not turn to him, and they'll be held responsible for that. But as is so often true in Scripture, God lays it out that, yeah, the people are responsible, but the leaders of the people will be held to uh, uh, even more responsible for what's gone wrong. And what are they doing wrong? Verse 16, they've been leading people astray. What does that mean? Well, verse 15 told us they're teaching lies. Do you see that there in verse 15? When we read that about leaders teaching lies and leading people astray, it's easy to picture these sinister villains scheming in a lair together to throw God's people off track. But if you've studied leadership failures, you know that that's often not how it actually comes to pass, right? So often leadership failures, especially among God's people, start in a little bit of a different way. They start with leaders believing their own press. You know what I mean by that? Like, like as a leader, if, if I'm praised by others who tell me that they appreciate my leadership for one reason or another— and I start to believe that and let that sink down into my heart and let, it, uh, let, let myself soak in it. And then I start to think to myself, actually, I am a really great leader. And actually, these people are right. They really do need me. Where would they be without me? Actually, when I think about it, they'd be pretty lost without me. So, you know, going forward, I really need to prioritize doing pretty much whatever it takes to keep myself in position as their leader because... If I'm ever not their leader, I don't know what these people are going to do. So maybe if I have to twist the truth a little bit here and there, what's really the big deal? And if the rules don't always have to apply to me all the time, does it really matter? Because if there's any negative that comes with my leadership, it's definitely far exceeded by the positives of them having me as a leader. Can you see how it could happen? I think that's something like what's going on here in Israel. We've been seeing it in the news here, haven't we? With Christian leaders, even in our local area, well-known folks going down that road um, by which so many Christian leaders and leaders of God's people over the centuries have fallen and bending the truth, toying with the rules because of the belief, people need me. People need me as their leader. 
What's the result? If the people recognize the error of the leaders and they refuse to listen, disaster could be averted, but that often doesn't happen, right? Because we tend to put our leaders up on pedestals to such a degree that we just take in whatever they say and treat it as though it's gospel truth. That's what happens here in Israel. We know from the first section that their security, their meaning wasn't found in the Lord. So where do they look for security and meaning? They look to their leaders, their human leaders, for security and meaning. And as a result, those leaders get more and more skilled at telling the people exactly what they want to hear so that they stay popular among the people. And as a result of that, the people are just getting fed a steady diet of junk food. Right? And the junk food looked like this in this case. Hey, yeah, we're, you know, we're getting invaded. We're losing land. We're losing ground. Things are tough right now. But you know what? There's hope right on the other side. It's right around the bend. We're about to turn the corner any day now. That was the junk food that they were being fed, the lie that the people were eating up because they were blindly following these leaders. And do you see what kind of people fell prey to this lie? Verse 17, all of them, everyone, strong and weak, young men, fatherless, widows, everyone has become godless. So friends, let me say this. Do not put your hope in any human leader. Sure, you love his podcasts, right? Sure, you are entertained by her books. They are fallible, flawed human beings. Do not put your hope in them. Test everything they say. See if it lines up with Scripture. Don't become a parrot who just recites something that any leader says, recites everything that they say. And listen, honestly, that's true for our pastoral transition here at North Sub, too. This is a season in which we need to be thinking about these leadership questions. Here's what I mean. It's no secret that over the past decade plus, there's been a decline in attendance at North Sub from what it once was, right? Um, in that sense, in that limited sense anyway, it might be a little bit, we might be experiencing just a tiny bit of what the people of Israel were experiencing as some of their land was taken away here, some of their land taken away there. They felt like momentum was on a downward slope over time. Um, in Israel's day, in Israel's case, we know from the text that it was a result of God's judgment. What about in North Sub's case? I don't know, is the answer, and neither do you. It would be an error to assume that because we face adverse circumstances that it's God's judgment on a specific sin that we've committed because the Bible makes clear that is not always the case when we face adverse circumstances. They're not always connected to a specific sin. On the flip side, it would be a mistake to just brush it off as the people of Israel did and say, well, hope is around the corner. We don't need to pay any attention to any adverse circumstances. The good news is that whether it is God's discipline for any sin on our part or not, that we face adverse circumstances over the last decade or so, the response that we're called to is the same, is to humbly seek the Lord in his face. It's to remember the lesson of this first part of the text. Uh, the first section of the text, maybe the lesson for us is there is something like this. Forget, leave behind the arrogance that says the last decade or two of declining attendance here at North Sub. That's a blip on the radar. Good days are ahead. 
Forget that. No, let's hit our knees and plead with God that he would do a work again and move in our midst. And maybe the, second, the lesson for us in the second section of this text is something like this. Um, maybe there's somebody here this morning who feels something like this. Our veteran, experienced pastor is stepping down. There's talk of this young pastor taking his place. The wheels are going to fall off the wagon. This person doesn't know what he's doing, right? This young guy, what's he going to do? Maybe the message for us in the second section of the text is our hope was not in Pastor Craig, right? As great as he is. And on the flip side, there might be somebody here this morning who's like, you know what? What we need to get back to the glory days is a young pastor who knows the culture these days, right? And so they're like, Pastor Tim, that's, that, now things are going to turn the corner. And the message from our second section of the text is our hope is not in Pastor Tim. Trust me. Please believe me. <laughs> Do not put your hope in me. Our hope is not in any leader. Our security, the future of our church, is not in the hands of myself, Pastor Craig, any leader. It's in the hands of the Lord. We need to trust him. So, despite God saying in the second section of the text that he's going to be removing Israel's false leaders, they won't listen. They won't turn to God. And so we see the refrain again for the second time, verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Third section, calling it brotherly hate. Verses 18 through 21. Would you follow along with me as I read there? It says, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, or, and are, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. In order to understand this third section of the text, let's retrace where we've been. First section, there's self-centeredness. Second section, the leaders are feeding that self-centeredness with lies that just fan it into flame. Now the third section that grows, that self-centeredness grows into murderous actions toward those around them. Do you see that in verse 18? The wickedness that grows like a fire. And so God allows enemy armies to invade. That's what it's talking about in verse 19 when he says the land is scorched. What does a selfish person do when enemies are attacking, right? When enemies are attacking their own, what does a selfish person do? The selfish person's instinct, the self-centered person's instinct is... I got to protect my own neck, right? And that's exactly what we start to see happen here. The people of Israel turn on each other, tribe against tribe, Israelite against Israelite, because there it's, it becomes a dog-eat-dog situation where I'm going to make sure I take care of mine and take care of my own. Now, what's considered good is not what's honoring to good, what's honoring to God and what's good for His people. Now, what's considered good is what's good for me and for my affinity group. So that's why we see in verses 19 through 21, 
the people being like fuel for the fire, not sparing each other, devouring each other, tribe against tribe. While the people should be banding together to fight their common enemy, they're turning on one another. And unfortunately, we Christians, we're all too prone to do exactly what's being seen in this text here, aren't we? When the world outside starts to put pressure on us, starts to say that we are bigots, we are backwards, we're on the wrong side of history, where do we tend to go so many times as Christians? Um, We turn on one another. We say something like this. We say to the world out there, we say, uh, no, I'm not the problem. I'm not the problem. It's that Christian. It's those type of Christians that are the problem. They're the ones you should hate. I'm with you. I'm like you. I'm not like them. Right? Turn our back on each other. Or maybe sometimes it looks like this. On our message boards or on social media, we get active with our thumbs and we start going on a rant about the Christians out there who uh, believe babies should be baptized. There are Christians out there that don't believe babies should be baptized. There are Christians out there that believe women should preach Sunday sermons. There are Christians out there that don't believe women should preach Sunday sermons. Or the Christians out there who think Alabama's abortion law was too strict. Or the Christians out there that don't believe Alabama's abortion law was too strict. We start pointing at the other within the family of faith and start saying, you're outside the camp. You're the problem. You're the enemy. You have left the true faith, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and I'm going to publicly shame you now. You know what our enemy, our real enemy, is doing the whole time that we're doing that? Wringing his hands, saying, this is excellent. This is exactly what I want. They've forgotten about me. They've turned on each other. They're doing my job for me. Now, hear me out. Is it important to defend the truth? Yes. Absolutely. Are there answers to questions like whether babies should be baptized and whether women should preach sermons and what situations should or shouldn't be uh, grounds for legal abortion? Yes, there are answers to those questions. We should have those discussions with one another. We should even debate each other on those things and try to persuade each other. But here's what I'm saying. I don't find in Scripture, no matter how hard I look, Something that says this. They will know you belong to Christ by your stunning logic. Or, they will know you belong to Christ by your impeccable theology. Or, they will know you belong to Christ by your zeal for the truth. I don't see it. Theology is really important. Truth is really important. But what I do see is they will know you belong to Christ by your love. And when Jesus says those words, he has in view, first and foremost, the love that we have for each other within the family of faith. Let's not turn on each other when we need each other most. Yes, Christians are wrong on things sometimes. And when that's the case, let's help each other out. Let's help each other Come to a correct understanding of things. But there's a way to do that without devouring one another, as it talks about in this text. God's people are divided in the third section of our text. Still, they won't turn to him, so we see it repeated there at the end of verse 21. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That leaves us just one section left. 
social injustice. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. Let me read it. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. When we have a situation like the one we've seen, rampant pride, section one of the text, um, delinquent leaders, section two of the text, tribal infighting, section three of the text, it should be no surprise that the people who suffer most in an environment like that are the poor and the marginalized, right? Because in a self-centered environment, the poor and the marginalized are the ones who don't have the resources to protect themselves and their own interests. So that's why we see what we see in verse 2. That the needy are deprived of justice. The poor don't get their rights. Widows are taken advantage of. Orphans become prey. That's what we're calling social injustice. It's that this fabric that's supposed to exist with God's people as thread is woven together with, fret, th- woven together with thread and a shalom, a deep peace between people. That thread is starting to be frayed, and even in times, it's starting to get shredded by oppression and a systemic injustice, really. And I use that word systemic because it goes beyond private one-to-one wrongs being done. Do you see that in verse 1? It goes into the structures and policies of the land. Verse 1, it talks about the decrees containing iniquity. It talks about policies that are encoding uh, oppression, And the result of that is that powerful people are profiting from the plight of the poor. I think that's what's involved in the word spoil in verse 2. Widows may be their spoil. In verse 3, we see that they're getting wealthy off of the poor, which, of course, in light of God's law, is heinous. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see what God says about it. It says, what's going to happen when Assyria comes? What what good is all your wealth going to do you in that day when the enemy comes in? It's not going to help you. It's tragic because there could have been a different story here. There could have been a story in which Israel, God's people, honored God instead of themselves, led rightly instead of leading astray, uh, worked for the common good instead of the good of just my little in-group, in a situation in which all were treated fairly, even the poor and oppressed, especially the poor and oppressed, but that's not the story we have. And in the story we have here in chapters 9 and 10, social injustice is the climax of it all, we might say. It's the final rotten fruit of a diseased tree. Now, it's, it's not always easy to see how these passages about social injustice apply to us in our day. Uh, after all, most of us uh, haven't bribed a judge to render a certain decision. Most of us haven't been involved in writing unjust laws. Most of us haven't foreclosed on a widow who's struggling recently. Uh, so it's hard to think about, like, what, what does this have to do with me? And I came across a commentator this week who asked three questions in response to this section of the text that I thought were helpful for me to reflect on. So let's just take a look at those three quickly. First, is it really true that I'm not involved in oppression? Like, I should think about the people I supervise. I should think about the people I pay to do work in my home or in my yard or with my children. 
Um, do they perceive me to be a generous person? Or do they feel like, you know, what, he's squeezing every drop he can get out of me and trying to pay me as little as possible? Is it true, really, that I'm not involved in oppression? Number two, am I involved in institutions that profit from oppression? This one's a little more difficult to think through, but if I think through my investments, for example, or if I think about the brands that I tend to spend my money on and uh, put a lot of my money into, are, are those brands and those corporations, are they known for profiting from oppression? If so, what does it mean for me that I'm choosing to put my money there? And third, what can I do to address injustice where I live? It may not be much, honestly. I'm not in the camp that thinks that every Christian should feel guilty if they aren't doing something about every single aspect of injustice being done in the world. I don't think it's actually possible, and I think it can be a crushing weight of guilt. However, to look at it all and be overwhelmed by it and say, I can't do much about all this, is not an excuse to do nothing. There's something that we all can do. And even if we can't be a champion for every issue, we must do at least the little we can and start somewhere. So hey, on these four sections, now that we've walked through all four, we've seen this refrain four times that his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. I hope you see, in hindsight, as we zoom out on the passage as a whole, that each time Isaiah says that, He's talking about a loving chastening. Like the intent of God's anger in all these cases was that the people would turn from their sin and come back to God in humility and repentance. But since they won't turn back, that's why he says, my anger is not turned away. My hand is stretched out still because he keeps chastening them to try to bring them back. And by the end of it all, they've suffered exponentially more than they ever needed to if they just would have turned to God earlier in the process. That's why our big idea today is this. Let us respond to God's chastening by humbly seeking him. Let's be different from Israel in this way. Let us respond to God's chastening by humbly seeking him. The blind optimist can't do this. In part because the blind optimist can't recognize often God's or our adverse circumstances as God's chastening. Often the blind optimist experiences adverse circumstances. Uh, let's go to that next chart. Blind optimist looks at adverse circumstances and they just look for the hope on the other side. They say, well, it's going to be better soon. It's going to be better. But we've seen something different laid out in this text, a different path that we might suffer adverse circumstances and then recognize them as chastening and then respond to that chastening by humbly seeking God and then we find the hope that's on the other side. That's actually what we're called to, and that's what I, Israel would have saved themselves a lot of trouble if they would have gone through. Now, hey, let's leave that up there for a moment. Sometimes, when you're in those middle two stages, recognizing adverse circumstances as God's chastening and responding by humbly seeking God, and you're crushed by the weight of your sin as you realize just how deep your sin goes and how it touches every aspect of your thoughts and attitudes and actions and inactions, and it runs so deep in your heart, it can feel crushing. It can feel overwhelming. And in those moments, it can even feel like, is there any hope? Could there even be hope at the end of the road? But there really, really is. And here's the reason why there's hope. 
There's hope because 2,000 years ago, on a Roman cross, the same God who had said to his people over and over and over again, my anger has not turned away, my hand is stretched out still, stretched out in judgment. That same God who had been saying for years, for centuries, it's not done yet. My anger is not done yet. There's more anger to come. That same God stretched out his hands in the person of Jesus Christ and took that on our behalf. As he hung on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, took the full force of the anger of his Father. The, father, the, the same hand that had only ever embraced the Son was now stretched out against him in anger, and he took that on our behalf so that you and I would never have to hear the words that Israel would eventually hear from God. You are no longer my people. So we face discipline in this life now, like a fatherly discipline that draws us back to God, but we will never, ever have to face God's wrath or condemnation if we are in Jesus Christ because that hand that was stretched out in anger against the people of Israel has been pulled back to accept that punishment on our behalf. And Jesus, he knew exactly what he was doing when he went to that cross. He knew that the pain that he was going to experience with the nails in his hands and his feet and the crown of thorns pressed into his brow, he knew that That pain was nothing compared to the pain that he was going to be experiencing on the cross as he experienced the wrath of the Father, something he had never experienced before, something more dreadful than any other human pain ever experienced. But still, he went there willingly for your sake and for mine. He knew exactly what he was doing on that cross. And the night before he did it, he told his disciples, what he was going to do. He actually gave them a word picture to help them understand it. We call it communion. It's a symbolic representation of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in this rite, we partake of a bread, of bread and of a cup together to remember Jesus' death on our behalf. We welcome his presence as we do so as we experience it together as sisters and brothers who partake of this bread and cup together. It's a celebration, actually, that we treasure because of the richness of what it reminds us about what it means for us. So to that end, let's go go before the Lord in prayer now together. Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, to you be praise and honor for giving yourself, for shedding your blood, and for letting your body be broken in death for our sake so that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Eternal God, bless this bread which we eat together in this cup that we drink together. Let us, through this bread and this cup, partake of Jesus Christ who himself is our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.